Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Niket Uttarwar. Niket's the founder and CEO of a company called Sudokra, which uses programmatic content to cover events and locations that don't get sufficient coverage in the mainstream media. Hi Niket, really good to have you on the show. Hey Alex, thanks for having me. Yeah. No problem. So I've been reading what you were doing with this uh, live Twitter narration. Can you explain a little bit what it is and, and what you're trying to achieve with it? Sure. Yeah. So my company, Sudokra, is a automated media production company. Uh, so I'm using text data sources and through a data pipeline, converting that and creating videos out of them using text to speech and other um, text summarization tools. Uh, the first, when I actually when I started it, I really didn't know if it could work. And I thought, hey, I'll make a proof of concept. Uh, and the, the use case was, I was talking to my grandmother about, I was asking like, hey, have you heard about this farmer strike in India? It's a pretty big deal. And she's like, no, I don't really watch news. I don't have the newspaper on. I don't have anything of this stuff. Uh, so I, I'm not going to be plugged into whatever is new. I'll... Uh, I'll get whatever's from the TV, you know, I'll come a couple, maybe days after the event or whatever. Uh, and so I thought, oh, you know what? I can build something for you to make like real time updates, but like have it be voiced out and spoken to you. So that was the first reason why I wanted to build something like this. And then through um, uh, like by increasing the digital accessibility of any kind of tool or any kind of data source, it opens the doors to a whole bunch of other communities, not just the visually impaired communities, but uh, it really increases the access and the reach for all of that data. So what I tried to do was make a pipeline that will uh, find whatever the top trending topics are in each country, get the top tweets from that um, in that country's native language, use some text speech on that, stitch the whole thing together and present it in a little video. So I've done that now at scale for about 30 YouTube channels now. So uh, that was the that was the intention and the goal behind live Twitter TV. Well, that sounds like fascinating tech, but I have to ask you about the use case. It seems like some people produce the news in text form. Some people produce it in audio form. Some people produce it in video form. You're taking the text form news and turning it into video. Why would people watch your videos as opposed to actually watching something that was produced as a video for television, for example? That is a great question because there's going to be a lot of news and like on specific topics that are very popular. There's always going to be people who are, you know, creating, uh, they're making podcasts about it. They're making videos about it. They're doing live streams about it, but that's not the case with most, um, uh, let's say niche topics. For example, I made a video or like the system made a video automatically for a, it was like an expo or a convention that happened in the Philippines and that type of news. And it had like really nice, someone posted about pictures about, about that expo. They had a, a little clip about it and uh, the system automatically picked that up found out that that tweet was relevant to whatever was trending in that country, that expo was trending, and made a little video about it. No one's going, that's such a niche topic that it's not going to be popular enough for most people who want to know or to make a video about like an expo or a conference that happened. 
maybe CES, but not like all of the expos around the world. So this way, a little piece of content is made that's like a slice of time of that event. And you get to, uh, and it's way easier to consume that in a short form video on the internet. Do you have plans for some sort of customization per person? So if I follow particular topics, I would get my own feed of videos as opposed to tweets, for example? Uh, that is a potential down the pipeline. At this stage, uh, I've just been tweaking with the algorithm, kind of making it a little bit better. Now, like the, the latest thing I did was if there's a video in the tweet, in a lot of cases there are, if it's under 15 seconds, then it'll actually splice that video into the tweet. So, you know, conference, uh, not conferences, um, concerts, concerts, people always take like videos with their phones and everything. And, uh, they tweet about that. So now in this case, all of those things are going to be stitched into the video. So if it's relevant to the topic and if it's not copyright, that's the big one as well, because uh, anything over 15 seconds, there's a higher chance of it being copyright. Um, now it'll just splice all of that in. So I've been adding features and functionality, but to your point about personalization, there was a, there's an idea that I'm kind of, I'm toying with, which is turning it into a, um, uh, like you imagine this, like you select whatever is trending and important to you. Let's say there is an event in your area, a concert or an expo, or there's a game that you're enjoying playing or a TV show, but there isn't an automatic video about it. I can, I'm thinking of making a portal where you can pass in whatever data that you want. Maybe it'll be a self-service model. And then within a couple hours, it can crunch out its own video. That's something I'm considering. But at this stage, I'm trying to like just, I put all of the, the pipelines out there. I'm seeing what kind of clicks. And if there's interest there, I might uh, make that happen down the line. It just seems like we're solving in some sense, somewhat inverse problems. My company starts from the assumption that there's a lot of different articles and data out there, and we have to filter it out, to pare it down to the best things that people need to consume. You're starting from the assumption that at least in some modalities like video, people only cover a very small sliver of the information space. And so you're covering the long tail, it sounds like. But... I think that if you do, you're going to encounter the same problem that we've encountered, which is there is way too much stuff out there. A person cannot possibly consume all of it. And so they have to rely on a third-party tool to help them select the 150 or so items they're going to consume per day out of billions available. And most of the tools out there today are not great. And so people end up consuming whatever trends on TikTok as opposed to what they should actually know to lead a better life. So how do you view the question of content selection? It sounds like you're about to reach it and we'll have to solve it somehow. Oh, I've, I've hit a few, a few bugs there, actually. Um, I can do a whole masterclass on all of the issues that it takes with dealing with the Twitter API. How there's like their, their internal selection of, of how to apply their own algorithms is not consistent across the board. That's the first issue. There's um, inconsistencies in their outputs as well. And there's also inconsistencies in the API calls that you're making. Whole bunch of issues there. Long story short, I've found ways to have to deal with a lot of those. Like, for example, um, 
I'm not doing much content moderation in my own sense because everything that is trending in a certain region, I shouldn't be the one to make the decision of what should be made a video on, what shouldn't be. Uh, I'm just highlighting whatever is popular in that area and what has the most, um, or maybe in some cases, the least voices that are like a, a, that are covering that topic. In but one big thing is the on Twitter. Twitter is way more permissive of a platform than YouTube. Like you can post far more, you know, uh, good and bad things versus what's acceptable on YouTube. So that is one of the challenges that I had to overcome. And there's some small filters that you can turn on, like about uh, whether this tweet is sensitive or not. Um, and so there's a few things that you can tackle, but you know, like you said, there's way too much information on the internet. There's too much. So, so what, like, I'm trying my best to try and filter things out and get the most use case out of them. But at the end of the, end of the day, if the content and the data source that you're getting is not good, the output isn't going to be good either. That filtering mechanism, every single person who's doing any type of moderation on this end has to deal with that. And it's not always going to be consistent. For example, the, the Twitter data that's coming from Russia and China is a very, very, very small sliver of what the actual information is going through and percolating in that country because there's not as much, um, well, well, apps don't work there. So everything that's in Russian or Cantonese is from outside of those countries. So the funny thing is I'm not seeing actual, uh, you know, like political treats or, you know, like real life situational treats. I'm seeing more, oh, hey, this artwork is cool. Or, hey, this anime is cool. And just like random things that keep percolating within those spheres. And it's not exactly what I expected. Um, and I'm sure like when, when people actually look for information, right? Like what you're doing with other web is like you're really filtering it down by by putting the blinders on and, and saying, rather than putting, actually I'm just assuming here, but like rather than serving all of the additional adware and bloatware, like here's the act trying, you're trying to narrow it down and make it easier for users to, be able to get to the things that they want. So to sort of sharpen the pencil here a little bit, our approach is we don't want blinders on, we want a quality bar that everybody has to pass, right? So we do want all the topics to be covered, but there is a minimal quality criteria that people have to pass to actually end up on the platform, right? So all the filtering is based on specific things like headline has to match the body of the article. You have to have external references, things like that. It's funny that you mentioned Russia because I think Russia is an odd example where Twitter is just not where the action is at because of geopolitical reasons, right? Everything happens on Telegram. And Telegram itself is being moderated by the government, which is a secondary issue. But I'm sort of curious about you saying that you don't need any moderation, because I think the concern that I would have listening to what you just described is that you're getting data from platforms like Twitter, which have moderation that is entirely post hoc, right? First, things are posted, then they go viral, then somebody notices them, reports them, and then sometimes if they are bad, they get taken down. It sounds like by that point, you might have already sampled this artifact and made a video out of it, but now you don't know that it was taken down on Twitter. Or do you continue to follow it to actually see if the item was taken down in your source platform? 
there's a time delay between those two things, right? So when something goes viral on Twitter or if it's like a, a tweet goes popular, that um, there's a, there's, I would say within a few hours, right? Maybe now it's different because Twitter is, uh, they're going through their own downsizing. There might not be as many people on top of things, uh, but there's within, I would say within six hours of that tweet going up, someone's going to have eyes on it through an official lens and be able to verify whether that should be there, whether it breaks any of their policies, whether like from a very high level. And from that point onwards, it either gets um, their conditional approval or it starts to, uh, they themselves are going to start to receive the, the number of people who will be able to see that tweet. And they have those checks and balances within, within their algorithm. That's, that's always been there. Um, so what my application uses is to find whatever is trending is uh, that itself is a time delay between what goes actually trending and what's available through search on trending. So, you know, an event happens, some tweets are really popular. Within six hours of that, I would imagine that Twitter takes things, they take notice on whatever is maybe extreme, whatever is uh, uh, maybe unsavory. And then within 12 hours of that, then that hashtag goes trending. And then within those 12 hours, that's when my search kicks in and says, ah, okay, this event happened in this region. Let's look through all of the previous data. So there's already that first pre-filtering that happens on Twitter's end by the time that I get to that topic. And, and then from that point, it takes me about three to four hours to, to uh, stitch up the video together and and then a couple more, maybe an hour or two to, to polish and post it. But there is enough of a time delay built into that. Second is on my end, first of all, first side of filtering is on Twitter's end, which I'm, I'm trusting the platform to take care of extremists and, uh, and such on that side. The second is on my end, when I filter, when I search for the information on, on Twitter itself, by just using their APIs, there are certain flags that I can put in. Like I can make sure that uh, possibly sensitive information or tweets are, are cut out of the filter results. Um, I can look for things that are tweeted in locations itself. So maybe if I want to find whatever is popular in a certain region, I can filter to that region itself um, and, and so on. So once I then get the information there, then there's a third step of filtering that I do based on the tweets that actually come through. Like, um, and this is something I just implemented right now, based on the images and the screenshots of the videos that are in the tweet itself, I download all of that, do a little bit of optical recognition on what's in there, and if it's sensitive or not, and if it is, then I'll skip through those. If it works through, then it, it continues on. So when I actually run the, like the whole pipeline for a single hashtag for a single video, it starts off with something like, here are the top 100 tweets in that area. All right, first filter done. Maybe there's 50 left, second filter done. There's 22 left, third filter done. There's maybe six left. And then I'll filter those based on the top tweets. And that's how I pick which ones get to be in the video. Are all of these steps that you describe automated or when you say I do X, you actually have to do it personally? Oh, no, no, no. The entire pipeline is automated. Yes, that is 
it, it's the whole thing is set up for um for about 30 YouTube channels right now. So well, that's that's one thing I can't personally take care of things. And then second is I only know maybe like three or four languages. I don't know the 30 languages that I'm filtering things on. So at first when I when I built the system, I'd make the videos and uh, I would go to my my brother-in-law who knows Greek and I'm like, hey, does this video make sense? I'd go to someone else who knows Cantonese. Like, hey, does this video make sense? And like that that initial uh, user testing was uh, a little challenging, but overall the things did work out. Yeah, I, I can help you with a few languages, not with 30. I, I do have to ask, so it sounds like text-to-speech has come a long way because my memories of it are still that the moment you get a text-to-speech video on YouTube, you immediately shut it down because it sounds robotic and unlistenable, even in English. Is it now at the point where people can actually enjoy it and listen to it for a significant amount of time? Or is it still unusual and creepy and how it kind of sounds like a human, but not quite. It's still identifiable as a robot. I'll say that. But the text-to-speech services have come quite a long way. Earlier, actually, if you look at the cloud service options out there, uh, Amazon Polly was one of the first ones that came out with it. And, uh, and maybe they had like 20 voices and of which most of them were English. And that was a revolution, but Amazon stopped working on their text-to-speech engine. They haven't done much development since then. Then Google Cloud picked up, and Google Cloud made maybe 50 voices available, and that was, that was fantastic. And that covers maybe 20 languages. And then Azure comes in, which is like, it's like the, the tail end of like all cloud services, right? Like AWS starts with things, GCP starts with things, Azure, maybe AliCloud. But at this point, um, Azure Cloud now has about 200 plus voices in different languages. So that covers pretty much every use case that I have. And within that itself, there are, like it's, it's quite advanced at this point. There are selection options for the, for the tone of the voice, whether it's a happy tone, a sad tone. There's also selection options for um, multiple male and female voices. So it's come quite a far, like long way. But at the end of the day, you can tell the difference whether it's a human speaking or whether it's a robot speaking. But the, the use case that I'm targeting is there's not going to be many people covering that expo in the Philippines or that natural disaster in Thailand. Or So when you get content available to you on those topics in those regions, you're going to want to accept it the way it is. Not always. Like I made it. Like the Grammys just happened. I don't know if you follow, but that was like a huge thing in the US, but it's also a huge thing globally. So as soon as that thing like happened, I saw at least 10 countries in different languages other than English pick that up and make videos on the Grammys. And I was like, wow, okay, that's amazing. That's good to see that things are trending in other countries and, and the voices pick them up and you get a a nice video at the end of the day, which is not in English for a global audience. So that's really interesting to see. But text-to-speech is one of the, it's it's a necessary evil. But on the flip side of that, I'm seeing some really impressive engines out there where you put in, you sample your own voice and then it'll auto-generate a text-to-speech engine that's custom for your voice. So it could sound like you're the one speaking 
maybe maybe through a muffled filter a little bit, but it sounds like you at the end of the day, which is which is impressive. Do all these engines charge per minute or can you deploy it yourself so it's more scalable and you don't go broke by trying to scale up to too many channels? So actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was afraid of that at the beginning too. I thought like, oh man, if I'm making hundreds of videos a day, it's not gonna, it's gonna rack up the bill, but they charge based on the number of characters that you push through for text-to-speech. And that that rate for charging for characters is like a couple bucks for a million characters. So I can be candid about this. My bill for, um, I'm using two voice engines. I'm using Google one and Azure one in different situations, but uh, combined for both of them last month was maybe $30. So it's really not that bad. I'm automatically thinking whether or not there's a use case for just narrating other news services. It sounds like you're applying things mostly to Twitter, which is, I would say, a secondary source of information. Most people tweet about an article as opposed to tweeting the actual article. I would think if people want to read good coverage and they have a hard time consuming it as text, there must be a use case for it as long as you give people access. Yeah, actually, the... I should probably mention the second part that I have launched right now. It's uh, I've only launched one channel about it, but it's article TV, rtcl.tv. Um, and I've launched, and what it does is it takes academic journal article summaries and uh, summarizes that, puts it through the text to speech pipeline, and then makes a little video out of that. Also, so if there's any images in the article itself, it'll pull that down, stitch the whole thing together with like, the article summary within it. So that's more of what you're mentioning, which is like primary source of information, things that are already covered. Uh, so I've only created the channel for uh, medical articles. So, but that itself is pretty, pretty large. So it's, uh, it's currently crunching through about, I think 2000 articles at the moment. It's somewhere halfway down the middle. Have you verified that its pronunciation of medical terms actually makes sense? Because those seem like they would baffle most automated engines, wouldn't they? There are a few use cases. There are some edge cases where you know the, the pronunciation is a little harder, but it's it's very rare because most articles use um, they use medical phrases and terms that are in the English lexicon, like. Uh, the phrase cancer comes up so many times that the engines know how to pronounce cancer. They know lymphoma because it's been pronounced many enough times. So there are some edge cases where it's um, it's not picking up the right like, like syllables to pronounce, but very, very rare. I'm speaking from experience as somebody for whom English is a third language. Most of the time, I'm looking at a term. I know how to pronounce it in two other languages, but I have no idea how an American would pronounce it. So I'm curious to what extent an engine would be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give them a try. Like the channel is, it's very young, but uh, Medicine Article TV is the channel. Um, some, no, some of them are, are kind of informative. Like I did not know that there was as much um, cancer research as I thought there was. There's a lot out there. It's kind of nice to, to know. And the idea is for, um, it, the idea is for educated yeah. academics who are in the space to be able to speak to, like to be able to consume a lot of the articles. So if you're in med school, if you're an aspiring academic, you need to go through hundreds of articles just to be able to get whatever domain knowledge that you have. 
And so the idea there is it's so much easier to be able to listen to a bunch of article summaries and then, you know, double click on them, find out more information if they're relevant to your space mm -hmm. in your field. So if I am a medical researcher and I am listening to a bunch of summaries of different articles, most likely there will be a few that I want to dive deeper into. How do I either bookmark them or find them after I've listened to the entire list? Ah, in that case, I've put the source URL to the article as well as the doage link to the article in the description of the video. So I'm doing that with all of the videos I'm posting, even on the Twitter ones. It's got links to the original Twitter tweet IDs and tweet links to be able to go and find and do more of a deep dive on, on all of the sources. So that's always been one of my uh, one of my goals there is like, this should be an initial way for people to find some information because video is a really accessible, easy way. But there always should be a way for people to be able to double click and deep dive into whatever sources. So uh, description has been a good help there. Are people actually consuming information in kind of a shallow dive and then diving deeper? Or are they jumping around randomly, which is the original Google assumption, essentially? Right. If, if you look at how PageRank was designed, the assumption was you click on links at random and occasionally you just open the new window and start over 15% of the time or so. But they did not assume any hierarchy to how people browse information. It seems to me like the hierarchy would make more sense, at least for people who are browsing with the intent of being informed and not of being entertained. Yeah, you know, that... That space of like how people ex access large sets of information, large data sets, and then drill down, that is a really hard problem to solve. Um, and if you think about how Google's uh, search engine and their business model works, is they, they make money by keeping you on the search engine by continually clicking through and like continually doing additional searches and you know, then finding something that you want to purchase or finding something that a service that would make sense. And that's their entire business model and, and providing that information to you in a nice packaged format where you want to continue to Google things, but it also gives you enough value that it should satisfy your need. But we're getting to the point where there's a lot more information out there for people to be able to process and just then just have everything packaged in one neat box with, you know, a, a purchase option with, with, um, maybe an advertiser sponsored option, maybe this, this person's been paid to go through some more information, but that's not always the, the case as we move forward, because there's a lot more individual uh, databases that may not have the ability to be crawled, like not just on the dark web, which is going to be a big thing on its own, which is continually growing, but individual servers of information, like I'm not sure... Mastodon has all of their servers that are scraped through and if, if they've been indexed in the same way. And I'm not sure Google is also prioritizing those because there's not as much way to make money and profit off of those. So the way that we search for information is very unique and niche to each person. And that's based on how they've, um, they've grown up, how they've had their own learnings through searching about information. So uh, making as many available avenues for be able to, people to be able to search is always going to be the right option because you don't know the, you can only guess your user stories for your customers and how they have um, 
have some innate knowledge about searching and how they want to be able to search, but you can't always put people in the same buckets, which is why in, in my case, having all of the information out there and making it all accessible by a video, and then people can drill down into each individual one, that makes sense. In your case, you know how people want to have a cleaner, easier way to be able to filter things through. Maybe I want to go through the articles. Maybe I want to search through the podcasts. That's another, that's another avenue where it's like interesting and accessible for folks to be able to do that without much more bloatware. So short answer to each their own. Long answer, I feel like there's a lot more um, individual aspect in that. And that itself is continually changing. So the more that are out there, the better. How do you generate the visuals that match the text that is being narrated? In the Twitter use case, uh, well, some of them are just text tweets, in which case it's kind of boring just to be able to see. And for five seconds, you're going to get that slide. But in many use cases, actually, I would say most tweets have some image component to them. So I'm always, I'm also uh, stitching in the image that's all that's in that tweet in like a easier full full page form factor, um, and now in videos that itself is also being seeded in, so you get to watch the video as well. Um, with article TV, it was a bit of a challenge. First, I was using um, Pexels, which is a image search engine. Uh, it's it's also open access. It's very um, it's very easy to use and it's easier to, to implement. I was using Pexels to get images that are relevant to the whatever uh, line of, uh, of text summary that I was doing and then stitching that into the video. So it's a nice little visual as well as the text. Uh, that worked maybe 60% of the time, but the 40% of the time it didn't work was really painful. Like there was a article about the nutritional benefit of frozen blueberries versus fresh blueberries. And uh, the funny thing is, one of the lines was talking about uh, how frozen is better. And the image that it picked up was, uh, it was like a death metal band where like they're in the Nordic region. So they're like completely frozen over and that's like plastered in with randomly along with the other sides of foods. I was like, okay, that just doesn't work out. So. In that case, I stopped doing it. I just put in like a simple, um, yeah, you know, like just simple article TV slide there. But in some cases where I'm able to get pictures from the article, like directly from the source article, I'm seeing that in the background. And that's nice to for be able, people to be able to see. But in many use cases, it would just make sense for the thing to be a podcast in just audio format. But video as a media is, it has innate benefits in some cases. So I'm really banking on those use cases. I've also seen if you go on TikTok and you search for news on TikTok, and I've seen a few where it's actually a person playing video games in the background as they are narrating the news. It sounds like you might actually be able to create a pipeline here that starts from social media and ends with social media. Oh my God. I think I've seen the things you're talking about and I was just, just like, Wow, that's so bizarre. I've seen people playing video games in one corner, talking about news, and then like a clip from an like a, a old black and white movie in like the other corner. It's like so bizarre that they're clubbing different medias together. And it's like, 
you have my attention on all three different things at different points. And it's very, yeah, that visual aspect is, it's a little bit, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't fully agree with, uh, uh, with that because I feel like in the attention uh, economics, like the attention economy, sure you're getting people's attention, but at the end of the day, people are going to want to focus on what they want to focus on. And if the idea is to be able to get your information in a, in a clean way, there's going to be certain people who want to get that in the, in the entertaining, maybe noisy way of having multiple different things going on at once. But there's also going to be a big chunk of people who want to get it in a clean way. And that's, again, that's another place where it's to each their own, right? Like each person has their own personal preferences. And so having the whole, so having a system that automates it for all the different types is, is beneficial in that sense. But uh, I do think that like the visual component to uh, included with audio is uh, definitely one of the major challenges that we need to overcome. So the guy I was referring to, I think the actual TikTok username is Reddit guy. And uh, he has a much higher follower count than the actual official Reddit account, playing Grand Theft Auto and uh, reading the news in parallel. So it is interesting what's going on in the attention economy. I think my personal prediction is that we've hit peak attention in some sense, just like cameras hit peak megapixels at some point and started optimizing for other things. My gut feeling is peak attention was 2021. And now it's not like it, we're going to shift quickly to something else, but I think most people are willing to give something else a look because it is true that we have been consuming empty calories in the information space for a long time. Oh, I like the I like the analogy you made with like food with with attention economy. Yeah, we have a lot of empty calories. That that's for sure. That is absolutely true. So, what is your greater vision of what the information ecosystem should be like, or what it should try to evolve towards? If everything goes the way you envision. 10 years from now, how is the world different? Uh, I have the utopian view and the dystopian view, and I hope we fall somewhere in between. But the dystopian view is that similar to YouTube today, where you can have your own little, um, uh, you have, you can fall into a stream of YouTube um, uh videos that can take you down to a certain part of the internet that you may not want to be in but you end up being like if you if you look for enough um extremist or alt-right or alt-left videos you'll eventually find all of the alt-right or alt-left videos that's that's the way that the algorithm works it'll just feed you the things that you want so, so unfortunately if we continue giving people what they want in sense there's going to be just a plethora of information across the board that are going to solve every single viewpoint every single support every argument and i don't think that's a particularly good thing but i also think that the alternative which is some algorithm deciding what information gets percolated or some company or maybe a country deciding what information gets percolated is also a bad thing so there are, I'm not entirely sure how that's gonna, how it's gonna look. Um, but what I am hoping is that there is enough freedom of speech within everything available out there 
that people are still going to be able to choose for themselves and not be forced to choose based on what's available. It sounds like, at least in what you're doing in your everyday endeavor, you're trying to amplify the long tails of topics that aren't covered enough. So do you view that as an important thing towards trying to improve this ecosystem? Or does that just increase the information space within which people can find their dark corners? It does both. That's the unfortunate truth, right? Um, as much as I hate to admit it, it does both. Like my, like, frankly, my wife was telling me about this one time, which like the very first video that I made, the very first video, I was so excited about it. I showed it to her and she was like, Nick, the Babylon Bee is not an accredited news source. That's like, it's like, a, it's, a, it's like the onion, but for, for right-wing media. I didn't know this, but I was like, oh, Jen, look, this is, topic was trending and like a Babylon Bee tweet got pulled into it. And she was like, this is not good. You need to find a way to, to fix this. And the truth is, I don't have a way to fix it. No one does. There is no AI algorithmic automated system that we can implement to make it so you're not pushing fake news or propaganda or uh, unfortunately all of it. I can help you with propaganda, but it's true that there's essentially no good model to detect satire. There isn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and so I'm in the very unfortunate scenario of being saying, Hey, I'm going to be making the content without fully knowing the implications of what I'm making. And the only solace here is that I'm aware of, of the, the changes that I'm making. And if there are better solutions to implement, I want to be the first one to implement them. But there, there is a risk that I'm taking by making sure that the, the expo in Thailand gets its attention. I may also be putting uh, maybe political satire or un, like incorrect news, clipping that together as well. So I'm, I'm hoping on two things. One is that you know, people have their own discretion. And two is that the algorithms do work. If, if I know that you know, there's, a, there's a BS video that gets made, uh, that it's not going to get the likes and comments and the algorithm is going to push it down versus if there's something else that has value to people. Like if it's about something important to someone, it's going to find the right people just through the way the algorithm works, get its likes, get the comments, and it'll percolate up to the top. So videos that hold value, I'm really hoping that those are the ones that get percolated versus you know, the, the uh, unusual, unhelpful ones. I think I share the same hope as you. Thank you so much for joining us. It was an amazing episode and uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much, Alex. It's really fun. This has been another episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more in-depth discussions on the future of the information ecosystem.